Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. Five minutes after 10, it's time for The Naked Scientist. And all your questions, curiosities that you have, Chris will be happy to answer them. The lines are open right now for your questions. 011-883-0702 in Johannesburg. And, of course, in Cape Town, you can give us a call on 021-446-0567. Let's see whether we've got a nice clear line to Chris. How's it, Chris? Eusebius, good morning. It's lovely to be chatting to you again. It's been a while, but, of course, I listen to you all the time. Well, I wish I could say likewise, but um, <laughs> I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm slightly challenged by geography. But happy New Year and good to talk to you in 2017. Thank you so much, and the same to you. Of course, you're not challenged uh, by this fascinating story you're going to share with us before we answer some questions. The tiniest of knots that have been uh, managed in a string of atoms to be tied. Yes, this is a group of researchers at the University of Manchester who've broken the world record for tying the tiniest and tightest knot ever. It's about one ten thousand times smaller than the width of a human hair. Everything's measured on the scale of a human hair, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's, it's made from a string of 192 atoms, mostly carbon atoms, and the way the researchers tie this knot is chemically. So they take four short molecules, which they incubate for a long time. This is not a quick knot to tie. If you were doing your shoelaces this way, you'd be waiting two days. But they add various chemicals and catalysts, including ion ions, and this causes this chain of carbon atoms to bend and kink into such a way that the strands wind round each other, crossing each other eight times, and ultimately, after another chemical step lasting another 24 hours, the ends link up and you get something resembling a four-leaf clover with the strands interwoven like a braid. And the incredible thing about this is that it happens entirely autonomously. By choosing the right chemicals and the right catalysts and the right conditions, you can make this process happen. So these chemicals self-weave into this knot structure. No one's ever made a knot like this before. They've never made a knot so small as this before uh, and never made a knot so tight as this before. Why does it matter? I was about well, to ask. We've, it, well, we've got lots of interesting materials that we use in the world around us, but they aren't necessarily the best for doing the job we want them to do. If you take Kevlar, for example, a super strong plastic, it's used to make bulletproof and stab-proof vests. It's also used in the jackets around jet engines in case something breaks in the engine. You don't want the parts to come flying out and pierce the passenger cabin. You enshroud those engines in Kevlar and they're capable of withstanding these pieces of material flying off a jet engine, which could be moving with the same momentum as a 10-ton truck. Jeez. And Kevlar can do that. But it's heavy, it's dense, it's bulky. Anyone who wears um, bulletproof vests, for example, in the police force or the armed services, they know. These materials are not ideal for doing the job they do. Mm. What uh, Peter, uh, David Lee, who's the researcher at Manchester, who's behind this paper in Science This Week, says is, well, we could take materials like Kevlar, if we could weave them and make them weave themselves at the molecular level, 
then actually we have the opportunity to make materials that have all kinds of interesting properties that go beyond those which we're currently capable of, but they'll be much more compact and they'll be much lighter. But the, the return of strength would be enormous. That's amazing. So It's not just for, for kicks that this was done. It's potential interesting functional value. Let's go to our first caller this morning, Chris. We've got Tracy on the line. Thank you so much for calling in, Tracy. What is your question? Thank you, and thank you for your fantastic show. Uh, Chris, my question is, I have a friend who is suffering from a condition called neuropathy, and is basically in his legs, he's starting to go lame, and he's been told that there's actually no cure. And I was wondering um, if you had any insight into that, and if you could point us in the right direction. Hmm. Hello, Tracy. Sorry to hear about your friend. Um, Yes. Well... Neuro means nerve and opathy means there's something wrong with it, hence neuropathy. And there's a range of different things that can go wrong with nerves. Nerves fall into a number of different categories. There are what we call afferent nerves, and afferent from our ferro in Latin means coming towards. They, They bring information into the nervous system and tell your brain what's going on in the rest of your body. Those would be your sensory nerves, and people who have a neuropathy affecting their sensory nerves tend to complain of pins and needles, tingling, burning sensations, or a lack of sensation. And there's a range of diseases that can cause that. Foremost among them probably is diabetes, actually. The other class of nerve fibres are what we call efferent, from effero in Latin, efferent nerves, and these are motor nerves. They're coming away from the nervous system and into your tissues, and they tell your tissues what to do. Those are motor nerves that send signals into muscles and trigger muscles to contract. If you lose the function in those nerve cells, then you can't control your muscles properly, and as a result, you get muscle weakness. And if you see a person who's got an affected nerve, you'll see that the muscles that it supplies are are thin and wasted and atrophic. They look much smaller than they should do. And again, there's a range of conditions as to why that can happen. Some of these conditions are inherited. People have genes in their on one of their chromosomes which control the survival of these nerve cells and if those genes aren't working properly then the nerve cells perish and this can happen at a range of different rates so some people can be affected at birth there are other conditions that affect people much later in life Um, other times these are required conditions and things like diabetes where your metabolism causes a challenge for the nerves and damages them can be one cause there are also immune reasons why people have a neuropathy or a functional neuropathy their nerves don't talk to uh, each other properly and so sometimes getting to the bottom of, of what that is is important so when someone presents with a neuropathy like this then it needs investigating they need to see the right physician urgently and they need to get a diagnosis because some of these things are reversible diabetic neuropathy for example if you treat the diabetes then the neuropathy will stop certainly stop getting any worse and it may even improve so it's very important to get the right diagnosis and i hope that your friend's going to be okay thanks so much for that question tracy much appreciated um peter welcome to the show yes uh yeah well go ahead what's your question Yes, uh, Dr. Chris, uh, my name is Peter. I'm calling from Johannesburg. Um, how does the brain simulate uh, dreams so vividly and seamlessly to reality uh, in relation to pain, smell, and things like that? Hello, Peter. Well, when you go to sleep and you, you drop off, 
you don't just become unconscious. People have, have done studies over many years now where they've recorded the activity of the brain when a person goes to sleep and the brain wave pattern that is produced when you're awake changes when you go to sleep and it goes into a very specific pattern. And at various points through the night, you then see a new pattern emerging. And this coincides with when people are in what we call the REM phase of sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. If you look at someone who's, who's got this going on, you'll see their eyes are flicking around underneath their eyelids. If you wake people up during that phase of sleep, they will say inevitably that you woke them up during a dream and they may be able to recall some aspects of that dream. Now, how does the brain actually do that? Well, when you are asleep, obviously there's no sensory input from the world around you coming in to your brain to be turned into those experiences. So what we think is going on is that the different parts of the brain which are concerned with processing different sorts of information, for instance, the part of the brain that does seeing, the part of the brain that does hearing, the part of the brain that does feeling and touch and fear, they, they all operate in isolation when you're asleep. And sometimes what they do is they, they take the experiences that they've had during the day and they re-execute them or rerun them. And this is probably some kind of tuning manoeuvre. We really don't know what's going on when a person sleeps and when a person dreams. We have not really any idea as to what the purpose of dreaming is, but we think pretty much every animal does it, so it must have some important role. And people definitely get psychological benefit. They, they feel more rested and they're more ready to face the challenge of the day ahead when they have had a good night's sleep with, with these uh, punctuations of REM sleep. So the brain is basically recreating some of the experiences of the day by executing similar programs through these regions of the brain that produce the experiences when you are awake. But because they're not stimuli coming in from outside, they're just autonomously generated stimuli, all kinds of random memories and things can be played to you, to your consciousness. And that's why dreams are often so bizarre or make no sense whatsoever, because they're not driven by proper purposeful external stimuli. They are random patterns or they are patterns triggered by the assimilation of information you acquired during the day and, and the brain having a sort of clean-up process going on mm. but because it's the same pieces of your brain that would normally present those experiences to your consciousness when you're awake they feel completely real to you and that's why they seem so vivid thanks Peter. fascinating question appreciate it if you've just tuned in you of course listening to the familiar sound and cleverness of the naked scientist if you have questions, remember you can also tweet us questions if you don't feel like calling in. Tweet us at Radio 702, at Cape Talk, or SMS us a question, 31702 or 31567. Anna, thank you so much for calling in. What do you want to ask of Chris? Hi, Chris. Good morning. And um, I've just had a baby, and um, I'm exclusively breastfeeding at the moment. And I've been reading information and research as to whether you should be introducing solids to a baby at four months or at six months. And I don't know which is the right thing to do in relation to her, her little tummy and it working correctly and also in relation to allergies. Oh, hi, Anna. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Well, and what's your daughter's name? Amelia. Oh, do you know, that's the same name as my daughter. It's a brilliant name, oh, isn't wow. it? <laughs> no, it really is. And there weren't very many Amelias around when I, when I named my daughter. Amelia. She's 10 now. She was, she was 10 at her last birthday, so she just, she just oh, turned 10. But anyway, congratulations. Wonderful time. Um, now, there are no real rules about this, because if you think about it, when we were evolving 
and you know modern humans anatomically modern humans have been around for a third of a, a million years or so um when we were, uh, were evolving there was no rule book that said right okay at this stage you have to exclusively breastfeed at this stage you may introduce things babies shove everything in their mouths all the time and they they often get hungry and then they get fractious and then you think well i need to feed the baby a bit more because it's clearly hungry and so the rule is you should do what what feels right breastfeeding is a very good idea and there's no right time to stop breastfeeding apart from when it feels right to stop my own daughter breastfed for 18 months my son lost interest at nine months and so it varies between individuals and it varies between what individuals are capable of sustaining because some babies just get too hungry and, and it's very frustrating and you have to introduce a bit of solid food you won't do any harm by introducing small things that are easy to, to take into the mouth in small amounts that are not strongly flavoured. Very salty things are not a good idea. Very sweet things are not a good idea. Um, so fa fairly easy to take in. Things like baby rice and that kind of thing. And from four months, it's probably fine. But babies have got everything they need in breast milk for at least six months, possibly nine months, possibly longer. But they let you know when they're, when they're hungry. And if they are not getting enough from breast milk, they'll tell you. And you just have to introduce small amounts of things slowly. You're not going to do any harm, honestly. Thank you, Anna. And congratulations on the baby. Yes, all the best with Amelia. I'll be mightily impressed, Chris, if you can answer this question and why you'll be able to. Here's one on Twitter for you. It says, hi, please ask the naked scientist if it's true that when a person dies, there's a flashback of their entire life for an hour. Well, we don't actually know. Because if a person really does complete the death process, exactly. then we can't ask them. <laughs> what we can do is to ask people who have had what are called near-death experiences. And there, there is a whole school of um, parapsychology and paranormal research where people do experiments on individuals who claim to have had near-death experiences or, or claim to have died, gone to heaven and been resuscitated. Mm. And a lot of the stories recounted by people who've been in that position are quite consistent. And they often talk about flashing lights and long tunnels and, and a feeling of restfulness and peacefulness. Now, a lot of those experiences can be accounted for on the basis of what a brain which is being starved of oxygen does. Mm. And your brain is incredibly metabolically active. It's very hungry for oxygen and sugar. About one-fifth of all of the blood that gets pumped out of your heart at any moment goes to your brain. And that means one-fifth of the oxygen in every breath you take goes straight to your brain. But your brain contributes only a tiny fraction, maybe 2% of your mm. entire body mass. In some people's cases, it's even less than that. And um, that was a joke. <laughs> but but the, the point is that your brain is burning off energy so fast that the minute someone becomes severely unwell mm. and metabolically unwell, their, their blood chemistry goes off, they don't have enough oxygen, they don't have enough sugar, and then the blood supply to the brain is compromised, then the brain immediately goes into a sort of self-defense mode, shuts down and tries to survive. And it's during that, that shutting down and survival process that you do enter a dreamlike state. And it could well be that a lot of these accounts that people give of my life flashing past my eyes and all that sure. kind of thing is probably all part of that process. Mm. Now, in those people who, who are resuscitated successfully, thank goodness, then obviously they live to tell the tale and they can say, well, I had all these funny experiences and that's probably what was going on. It's your brain, which is a very delicate thing, it's very energy dependent and it's very chemically sensitive. If you disturb that equilibrium, it then begins to generate bizarre experiences just quite naturally. And 
when you then reset the system and a person recovers, then they can say, well, well, I had all these experiences and that's probably what was going on. Mm. Michael, I think all the way in London. Michael, thank you so much for calling in. What question do you have? Good morning, Sidious. Well, uh, I would like to ask the naked scientist, what is the real cause for plantar fascia and how do you treat it? I've been having it for five years, I think. Oh, hello, Michael. Have you got this in your feet? Have you got plantar fasciitis in your, in, when you stand up? Yes, please. When I walk, when I go to bed, mm. uh, every time when I wake up in the morning, it's the same thing, same process. Yeah, do you know what I think it is? I think it's that horrible thing called age. Because I, I thought I was going to live forever, and then about a year and a half ago, I started getting up in the morning, and I would put my foot on the ground, and for the first five minutes or so, my foot would ache and it was so painful and even getting out of the bath and putting one foot down onto the floor uh, it stretches the the arch of your foot and it's so uncomfortable and what, you just what is this phenomenon you're terrified it, it's called plantar fasciitis yeah. and when uh, when you uh, put your foot down on the ground uh, michael can probably echo this you get pain up in the arch of your foot like like mm. you're trying to sort of snap your foot into and it feels like something is tearing or, or pulling very painfully inside your foot, usually up under the arch or on your heel bone. Mm. Now, we don't know why this happens. It's some kind of inflammatory, degenerative thing, which is often reversible. In many people, it comes, you have a flicker of it. It reminds you that you are mortal, you're not going to live forever, and you should probably make the most of every day. And then, thankfully, in my case, it, it went away. I suspect I'll get more things like that because age has an effect on you like that, doesn't it? But um, it, it, thankfully, it's not terribly harmful in the majority of people, and it is self-limiting, it just goes away. If it's a serious problem, you should definitely go and see somebody, because in some people's cases, there are other structural things going on with the foot, the heel and ankle joint, which can produce similar symptoms or the same symptom, but it gets a lot worse, and sometimes it's necessary for, for a, an orthopaedic surgeon who knows about bones and joints to intervene and put things right. I love your bad advice to him, though. Just get on with it. It's a sign that the end might be nigh. <laughs> well, no, make the most of it, was what I said. <laughs> while, we, while you still can, you know. Like, no, I totally agree. I, I realise Oscar Wilde was absolutely right. Youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> totally. Queen, welcome to the show. Hi, morning. Um, I wanted morning. To, to ask a question, a follow-up question on the issue of death. Um, what I wanted to know is, do people that are going to die have a sense or a feeling that they are going to die because in most cases of people that I've met that have people that have passed on, they say this person did something or they said something which when they look back indicates that they were going to die. Mm. Yeah, hello, Queen. Well, you have to be cautious about attaching coincidence to these things because obviously if a person does die and then they happen to have done something, then you think, oh, well, that must, that must be that they knew they were going to die. But all the other times they did that same thing and didn't die, we didn't attach any relevance or significance to it. So you've got to be a little bit cautious. But I think, yes, people do know that they are, are nearing the end. Um, in hospital, I've cared for many patients who have said to me, you know, I, I think, I mean, one man said with a, a, a wry smile I, I reckon I'm going up there and you know a couple of days later he had died so people do have a sense that that things are slowing down and they they do know I think in their heart of hearts and I think there's also an element of letting go um, people can hang on psychology is a powerful thing and if you look at the the death rates that happened around the millennium when we got to the year 2000 uh, I believe I need to check the figures but I'm pretty sure that 
if you look at the number of people who died in late 1999, compared to how many should have died around the same time of year, there was a drop. It was like people were hanging on for the millennium. And then as soon as the year 2000 went past, there was a, an upswing in the number of deaths. Like people said, well, I've made it now, now I can die. Uh, so it might just be coincidence, but I do really think that people have an insight and an instinct uh, that, that their body is slowing down and getting ready to die. You don't just uh, wake up in the morning, do your day's thing, and then go, mm. right, I'm going to die now, and then and die. <laughs> it, it takes a while, and it's a steady process of slowing down, and people just become more and more slow and, and tired and sleepy and then barely rousable, and then they just sort of drift off to sleep. Um, it's not always like that, of course, but in many cases, that's what happens. And, and I think people do have an insight that that's what's happening to them. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick breather. We've got about five minutes left. Uh, we'll get through as many questions as possible. Let me read out this question, and Chris will answer it on the other side of the spot break. A question from Twitter. Uh, Tato wants to know from Chris, why are mosquitoes selective on who they bite? My husband never gets bitten. Is it just cold-blooded? 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, what's your answer to that question? Mosquitoes, why do they discriminate? They certainly do discriminate, and there are people in the population who smell and taste great to a mosquito. There are other people who do not. There is a researcher called John Pickard. He works for Rothamsted Research, and he devoted a lot of his life to trying to work out why this is. They've done things like put people into gas chambers where you, you have a chamber where you isolate the person and you can take off every gas that's coming off of them, volatile small chemicals oozing out of the skin, and you can blow this down a pipe and you, you have basically a T-shaped junction mm. where the smell of one person goes into one part of the top of the T, the smell from another person goes into the other side of the top of the T, and then you put mosquitoes in at the bottom and you see which go right and which go left. And if more of them go to the right, more of them go to the left. And if you do these sorts of experiments, you find there are definitely people who clearly attract mosquitoes. There are equally people in the population who smell really bad to a mosquito. We don't know exactly what these chemicals are, but researchers have identified some of them because we are all oozing chemicals through our skin all the time. And mosquitoes have antennae which are bedecked with millions of receptors, which are chemical docking stations for these smells. And that's how they home in on the sources of smells by flying around and, and seeking out where the smell is becoming stronger. Now, it, it seems that there are people who just make certain combinations of these odorants that mosquitoes really, really love other people make some of these odorants that mosquitoes really hate and it's unfair but it's a fact of life and my wife is one of the type of people who mosquitoes love i am uh, an individual who they don't tend to bite very frequently so i love going out with my wife not just because she's my <laughs> wife but because i never get bitten when we were in australia you know in an area in a swampy area loads of mosquitoes there she was absolutely covered i hardly got touched because she was the mosquito magnet they all go on her <laughs> Squeeze in a final call. Uh, Molet Sana, thank you so much for your patience. What do you want to ask? Thank you. I just want, I just want to ask Kai, good morning. Good morning. Oh, yes, I wanted to ask if there's anything called uh, um, allergy to exercise. Um, I usually run on Sundays, and but I struggle with uh, getting itchy and lots of nausea. And I ended up, if I have to go to a race, I have to take maybe allergics and the auntie then to put it all over my body, then it gets a bit easier that way. But um, basically, every time I have to do any form of exercise, I get extra itchy and uh, nauseous. Hmm. Oh, dear. Well, um, skin itching 
it can be for a range of reasons. I mean, it might just be a simple allergy and it may come down to something as simple as something in washing powder because when you wash your clothes, there are various chemicals, especially in biological washing powders, that are protein-based. And when you sweat, you can soak some of those things out of the clothing and into your skin. Also, when you've got things rubbing against your skin when you're running and so on, then you can open up little cracks in the skin and these allergens can get in. It could also be something in the air. If there's something in the air you're allergic to which gets into the skin and makes it itchy, especially in the presence of, of sweat, which makes it easier for the stuff to get in, that could be part of it. Feeling a bit sick when you're exercising is quite normal, actually. Lots of people, um, when they exercise very hard, do say, I end up feeling a bit nauseated. But if this is a new thing, if this has suddenly started happening or it's suddenly got a lot worse, something must have changed, and you should definitely go and seek help for that. But it does sound to me like you might have some kind of skin allergy or some kind of urticarial response, which could even be uh, because of temperature because sometimes people have this response when they get hot. So maybe go and see an allergy specialist and see if they can take a look for you, and that might be what it is. Okay, Great stuff. Thank you. Thanks, Molisana. Thank you, Chris. Have a wonderful weekend and week ahead. We'll chat to you again next week. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Eusebius. Bye, everybody. Cheers. And that was this week's edition of The Naked Scientist. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.